before we read our scripture, <clears throat> I want to set it up for you. And uh, I want to do it with an illustration that came about in my life yesterday. I, I was at the Cubs-Red Sox game yesterday evening, and it was sort of a pre-Father's Day. Father's Day, I had uh, my father-in-law and my two boys, and it was a really beautiful day. It was a, um, a, a, a great game. And there was one mild negative thing about the game, and that there was a lot of rowdy, raucous fans. Unfortunately, many of them had Red Sox hats on. Um, but... Even the Cubs fans got a, a little rowdy and raucous at times. But in one particular way, it was, uh, it was very well-deserved. If you are a baseball fan, you'll appreciate this illustration. If you're not, hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll uh, still understand it. But uh, Soriano was at bat, <clears throat> and uh, there was two men on base, and he stung a line drive to the third baseman. Well, he assumed that the third baseman was going to catch it, and so he didn't run. He took a couple steps down the 90-foot path to the first base. And uh, unfortunately for him, the third baseman bobbled it. He sort of did one of these, and it dropped on the ground. And he could have easily had made it to first base had he run it out. And instead, what, what could have been a, a bases-loaded, two-out situation, it was at the end of the inning, because the third baseman picked the ball up, threw it first, and got Soriano out. Well, Wrigley Field did not like that, and they, it, the the, uh, the crowd just erupted in boos, and then people were uh, yelling facts at him about his contract price and how $10 million a year or whatever it was is worth a, a 90-foot run, and people were, were really calling him on the carpet. It, in a very in-your-face passionate, calling you out sort of way, Jesus is calling out a group of people this evening, much like the baseball fans did to Soriano last night. The question I want to ask you is, why? Why is Jesus so passionate? Why is Jesus so upset, so offended in our reading? And the second question I want to ask you is, I want you to ask yourself, am I guilty of any of these things that Jesus is talking about? So one, ask yourself, why is Jesus so passionate about this? What's the big deal here? And then two, ask yourself, could I be guilty of these same, same things? Let me pray and then we'll read about this heated exchange between Jesus and this group of people. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word and, and how full it is and how rich it is. And uh, I thank you that we get to see a live demonstration of your values when we look at Jesus. We see your grace and we see your truth and we see your passion for what is right. So thank you that we see this heated exchange. Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see and a heart to be real enough to see where we fall into the same traps. Lord, work on us tonight and leave us changed. A little bit better, following Jesus a little more closely. We ask this in full dependence of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. It's Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 28. Now, shake off the fact that you've read this all your life, perhaps, and the words just sort of seem very familiar and very mundane. These are not mundane words. Let them come alive to you as you read it tonight. Matthew 23, 13 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law, 
and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by oath, his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup, and the, then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Wow. Those are some serious words. They're, they're re if we could see this exchange, we'd even be more blown away by it. I wish I could remove some of the, the uh, pronouns, some of the... the, the um, proper nouns, some of the labels, and then ask you, who is Jesus talking to? Because if we remove those, those proper nouns, those capital letter um, pronouns, then you'd probably guess that, you'd probably think, but by the intensity and selection of Jesus' words that he's talking to the, the social riffraff, the morally inept group of people. But it might surprise you to know that you can scan through the Gospels, and you won't, won't find Jesus being harsh or intense like this with the morally inept, with anyone on the short end of the in, God, in God's grace stick. In fact, he kicks off his sermon with the mount, on, the, on the mount with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In this reading, Jesus is actually talking to the religious bigwigs. The closest things to Pharisees in our denomination in CRC circles is probably me. It's probably me, and I hate to say it, maybe the elders, maybe the denominational officials, the synodical deputies. It's the people who really control the religious um, 
life and teachings. Pharisees were the religious church leaders of Jesus' time. But in Jesus' culture, Pharisees and teachers of the law were not just the religious elite. They were also socially and judicially very influential. In fact, you might be... Might you might be able to think of them like this. They were sort of the God mob. What they said went. They can make your life extremely miserable if you got on their bad side. To most people, they were untouchable. To Jesus, well, he called it like he saw it. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be wondering... What got Jesus so upset at these guys? Why is this all taking place? Well, at the heart of Jesus' message and ministry is a big idea. And I want to pause for a second. Instead of me telling you that big idea, I want to ask you, what is at the heart of Jesus' message and ministry? You could use Jesus' words himself if you want. If you could sum up in a phrase what Jesus was all about what Jesus' main mission was, what would you say? Come on, we have some. Okay, save the world. That's, that's pretty decent. Any other? Mercy. Love God, love people. All very good. In essence, the heart of Jesus' teaching in ministry is that he came to make God accessible to everybody. Everyone, regardless of social, religious, or economic status. Poor or rich, male or female, insider or outsider, Jew or Gentile, Jesus came to connect people with God. Phrases, seek and save the lost. Proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. Preach the good news or preach the gospel are all ways the Bible uses the uh, Bible uses to say the same thing, that God is not only real, but he's personal and knowable. Jesus' big statement in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 is this. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. And then he goes on to explain what the gospel is. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. So change your ways, change your mind, because God's presence, God's reign and his rule is here. This goes for people who've got their religious act together and for those who think they don't have a chance at all. When it comes to accessibility to God, Jesus' message put the local hooker on the same plan as the local pastor. In this sense, Jesus was the very antithesis of the religious leadership of his day. And this is why Jesus really goes off in an in-your-face passion that, that uh, rivals Cubs fans. But before we look into that, look into that passion, I want to look a little bit more closely at Jesus' uh, five woes. And... Uh, each one has a specific reason why the Pharisees should beware. 
An interesting fact, though, is that the Pharisees didn't see this coming at all. They weren't ready for this. They didn't expect this. And then Jesus just, like a fire hose, goes off on them. They didn't see it, they didn't see it coming at all. They thought they were doing things right. They thought they were at the head of the class, so to speak. And to me, this fact is scary. This means that legalism is like carbon monoxide. Legalism is like carbon monoxide. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You don't realize you're exposed to it until it starts doing damage on you. And so, before we look at these, I want to ask you to look at yourself. Let's look at ourselves. Do we think we have our religious act together? When it comes to faith and God, do we think we're at the head of the class? Or is there some areas areas where we might be living in these blind spots? I'm just going to sort of go rapid fire through these. And as I do, ask yourself, do I fall into this pitfall? pitfall? I'm going to break the woes up into five categories and give you five myths and then talk about the five realities. Woe number one comes in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to uh, enter. Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. You think, and this is the big myth, that God is closer to some people, but far away from others. And I think this is a common pitfall to fall into, a common myth to have running in, our, in the background of our minds when we relate with people. That God is close to some people, and usually those some people look like us, have our same expectations, follow our same routines, but he's farther away from others. There's an old Irish prayer that goes something like this. May those who love us, love us, and those who don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he can't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so we'll know them by their limping. couple chuckles. Basically, it's the same myth of the Pharisees. We love people like ourselves. And we think God is close to us, so God is close to them. But not, man, not that co-worker. Man, not that neighbor. Man, not that black sheep uncle or black sheep nephew. That's the myth. God is close to some people, but farther away from others. The Pharisees had a way of creating this structure of rules and regulations and, and, and said, if you can't do this, 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 and this, then you're out. And they slam the kingdom of God in the faces of people who don't meet their abilities, their expectations. Yet Jesus is saying, hey, you're not in there either. You've got this great moral construct, this great theological construct about God. And in your rule-keeping, you're missing the heart of God. And God's reign and rule is not in you. The kingdom of heaven is not in you. 
the reality is God's available to everyone who seeks him. Acts 17, 27, Paul corrects this myth when he's talking to the pagans of Athens. He says this, he says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each, each one of us. We talked about this last week when we looked at prayer and fasting. Psalm 51 says, there's a prayer that God won't deny. A broken heart and a humble spirit will not be denied by God. That's why Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who feel bankrupt spiritually. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do we fall into that pitfall? Based on our morals and expectations, do we slam the kingdom of heaven shut on our coworkers that seem very far from God? Or do we keep wooing them, inviting them? Woe number two, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you become one, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Man, those are fighting words. Not only is he calling them hypocrites, people who think one thing and do another, but he's calling them a son of hell. Myth number two. The good news is arduous and burdensome. It's exact and perfecting. And if your Christian life isn't exact and perfect, you are out of God's will. That's a myth that legalism can pull us into. And we can feel feel guilty and shameful We feel like we don't measure up to God's standards, standards, so we stop praying. And because we stop praying, we feel like we're miles away from God. The myth is, the good news is arduous, burdensome, exacting, and perfect. The reality is the good news is grace-filled, freeing, empowering. Oftentimes, we, we put the cart before the horse, Oh, I'll get to this in myth number four. Uh, um, we'll get to that. Let's look at, at uh, woe number three, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I love that thinking. Think of yourself, you just brewed a cup of tea. And uh, you uh, are, are scooping out the little gnats in your tea before you drink it. Jesus is saying, you strain out a gnat when it comes to your spirituality. They're, they're, the, the Pharisees were great at keeping the law. They would go into their gardens and pick off a tenth of the basil, a tenth of the oregano, a tenth of the dill, and they would offer it up as a sacrifice to God. They were exact. But as they strained out the gnat, they forgot to strain out the camel that's in their teacup. 
They didn't give a hoot about justice, mercy, compassion. They were faithful to the law, but not faithful to God. Faithfulness. Myth number three is God is interested more about our faithfulness to the details. God is interested more about our faithfulness to the details. This is a very common, um, it's like gravity pulls us into this. We, we flip the cart and the horse thing. The cart is this. Hey, our faith should be showing, um, you know, I go to church, I give, I pray, I fast, I do all these things. Those are the details. And we let the details drive us. Oh, man, I haven't been doing this, so I, I must be out of whack with God, so let me start doing this. And we let the details drive um, the, the cart drive the horse. But the horse is God's transforming work in us. God, it, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's God's reign and rule in us. That should be driving the cart. The horse, God's reign and rule in us, should be driving the details. Out of God's transforming work, out of his, his love, his mercy, his grace, we should now be generous. We should now be uh, connecting um, with fellow believers. We should now be worshiping. But we don't do those things to get God's transforming power. We do those things out of, from a heart of God's transforming work in us. Pharisees focused on the controllable, measurable things, all the small things. But they didn't work on the intangibles, the hard-to-control things like love. How do you become more loving, compassion? Fidelity. These things require a lot more sacrifice than a tithe. Woe number four. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. This is a great illustration. Myth number four is... Faith is about doing. Faith is about doing. Again, it's a cart-horse uh, mix-up. And I, I have this real-life illustration. It's hard to believe that this actually took place, but it's true. Um, in, in high school, I kind of ran with a crazy bunch. And when I became a Christian, um, I stopped doing a lot of the crazy things that the crazy bunch uh, did. I still try to be, keep, keep up friendships with the crazy bunch. And one of, the, one of those guys was Bert Hopkins. <clears throat> And uh, um, I, I kept in touch with him, although uh, I went from high school to college and continued my Christian uh, walk and my, my Christian faith matured, and then I went on to seminary. And somewhere towards the end of seminary, I, uh, um, Bert was going to be in the area, and so we met at Chili's, and we, and we spent like an hour and a half at lunch and, and just catching up, and I you know, was telling him what was going on in my life. And, and uh, at the end of it all, he said, Mike, you're not like the... The, the other Christian that I know, I guess there's only two Christians in his life, he said, that guy will go with me to the strip club on Friday and then ask me to church on Sunday. And, you know, it just didn't seem to line up. But I could tell you from what you're interested in, what you're doing, that your internal world lines up with your faith. He didn't word it that pithy, but... Uh, and I couldn't believe it. I can't believe, oh, man, this is a great example of faith. Let's go to a strip club, and then I'll ask you to come to worship with me on Sunday. Faith 
isn't about doing. Now, this guy probably thought he was doing okay. He's evangelizing, inviting people to the church. He's going to church. Faith is not about doing. It's about being. Faith is about being. Letting God into your interior world. And that cleans our insides up. The more access we give to God, the more the Holy Spirit will heal, grow, mature within us. And that's how the inside of our cup gets clean. Now, I don't know if you ever had a, a dirty cup, a dirty stained coffee cup. But if you clean the inside all sudsy and you clean up that inside, almost naturally the outside cleans up. And uh, I hope my dad won't listen to this on the web, but that was really um, when my dad became a Christian. We were watching almost overnight God clean the inside of his heart, his soul. And his outside became cleaner. His, his, uh, his vocabulary became a lot cleaner, which we were grateful for because we had grandkids. Last woe, number five. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside and on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The last myth here. The Pharisees were buying into this myth that if I look tight with God, then I am tight with God. If I look tight with God, I am tight with God. You heard that saying, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, well, it's a duck. Not so in the spiritual world. You can look like a passionate follower of Jesus. You can act uh, outwardly, use the lingo. But inside, you and Jesus could be far apart. The myths, if you look tight with God, you are tight with God be further from the truth. The reality is a relationship with God has a definite outward component, but it's contingent. It's contingent on an inward reality. If your heart and your mind and your will is aligned with God, if you're... Um, we were just talking about this at lunch. There's that this song by Chris Tomlin, We Wave the White Flag, We Surrender. If we are waving the white flag of our wills, of our hearts, of our desires, if we are surrendering that to Jesus, our inward reality will pull our outward reality. And we'll begin to look tight with God because our insides are tight with God. And tightness with God comes, to, comes through surrendering your will, your prerogatives, and aligning yourself with God. So how did you do on a scale on, on that, that, that five myth? If you scored one or more, like I did, maybe you could use a fresh look at the gospel of Jesus. And I encourage you, I, this summer, don't take a break from God. You're headed to the lake, you're headed to the river, you're headed up north, south, wherever. Maybe it's a staycation here. Turn open Matthew or Luke or John and look at Jesus. 
with fresh gospel eyes and see how alive and how passionate Jesus is for living a life with God.